What's going on, Law Nation? Welcome to the Passive Income Attorney Podcast, the best place for learning about the world of alternative passive investing so that you can have more freedom, flexibility, and fun. If you're ready to practice when you want to and not because you have to, start by going to attorneybydesign.com to download the Freedom Blueprint, which will also get you access to partner with us on one of our next passive real estate investments. All right, let's set the stage with asset protection and why it's so important. It only takes one big lawsuit or one big catastrophe to wipe away years or even decades or a lifetime's worth of gains away. Now, I'll point out now why passive investing in real estate is especially attractive for that very reason, and that is the fact that you are not liable beyond your initial investment, meaning whatever you invest in, if you put $50,000 into a real estate syndication as a passive investor, yeah, you might lose all $50,000, extremely unlikely, but you cannot get sued for let's say a slip and fall case on the property that you invested in. The active partners may, the LLC that owns the property may, but you as a limited partner or a passive investor are only limited to a loss of your initial investment and your, your other assets, your other investments, your personal residence and your personal income are not at risk. But what you can do is protect yourself from yourself by using an LLC. In case you do something, let's say you're negligent, you get in a car accident, hurt someone, get sued, and you're found at fault. You, by having an LLC that invested in a passive, as, as a passive uh, real estate syndication, may be able to protect yourself from yourself. But for those of you out there that have started or are at least planning to start a business or maybe take an active role in real estate investing, make the investment upfront to protect yourself through asset protection. Now, even more so than a passive investment, you are putting yourself at risk. So make sure you make that investment up front, talk to an attorney, talk to an asset protection attorney, and make sure you get set up properly. Our guest of honor today is attorney Mark Pierce, the owner of Cloud Peak Law. With over three decades of experience, Mark has truly seen it all, at least from a legal perspective. CloudPeak concentrates on asset protection, helping individuals and businesses of all sizes to safeguard their assets by forming an LLC based in the state of Wyoming. He's also another fine example of an entrepreneurial attorney who thinks outside of the box to use his legal background for success outside of the walls of a traditional law firm. He's currently tuning in today from France on a hundred plus day cruise. Now, how many of you out there have the freedom to do something like that? That's pretty wild. Anyways, let's jump into the show. This is the Passive Income Attorney Podcast, where you'll discover the secrets and strategies of the ultra wealthy on how they build streams of passive income to give them the freedom we all want. Attorney Seth Bradley will help you end the cycle of trading your time for money so you can make money while you sleep. Start living the good life on your own terms. Now, here's your host, Seth Bradley. Mark, how's it going, brother? Welcome to the show. It's going well. Thanks for having me on, Seth. Yeah, so tell, tell the listeners where you're tuning in from. Pretty interesting. <laughs> we landed in Brest, France yesterday. I've been on a cruise for 105 days in the Mediterranean. You know, they went over this thing about working remotely, and I thought I would put it to the test. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's really putting it to the test, man. That's awesome. You're taking advantage of that. Yeah. I can certainly appreciate that. Yeah, it's been great. You know, the, the difference in countries as to the level of connectivity you have is pretty astounding. Uh, we had great connectivity in Greece. We had good connectivity in Italy. We got to France has been pretty good, but the connectivity in Spain was really dicey until we got to Barcelona, which is an industrial city, and then it was good. Yeah. So we've gone back and forth on that and the levels that we had. You know, 5G coming online in the United States is a, is yeah. a gift in comparison to the, what, what they're experiencing over here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you can only do so much. You can tell, tell people to wait. <laughs> you're, you're traveling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. You'd be surprised. We work in the afternoon and uh, get things done at night. And I, we really have not noticed a gap in level of service that we've had. And I've got good people that I've partnered with on this business of ours. So we haven't, um, they, we've had no issues. Awesome. Awesome, man. Glad you're able to get away. All right, Mark, why don't you jump into your story a little bit? Tell us a little bit about your background. Um, take it back as far as you want to. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it's kind of a varied background as to how I got here. You know, um, I had grown up in uh, central Wyoming in an area of the United States where just the fact that you graduated from high school put you in the top 50% of your class. So <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, kids talk about parents' expectations and being pushed and you know, micromanaging parents, what do they call them, dragon ladies or whatever. I didn't suffer from that disability. I don't recall my parents being all that involved in anything that I was doing ever. So, you know, the, the fact that I got out of high school, who could have known? <laughs> so I, I went to college, managed to get a degree in accounting and a minor in statistics. I went to work uh, for a large accountancy firm. I was there long enough for a cup of coffee. And like Will Rogers says, when you find yourself in a hole, quit digging. So after about two weeks with this company, and I don't even think it was that long, to be honest with you, I quit and went to work for an offshore drilling company. And I loved it. I was making $50,000 a year in 1979, traveling up and down the West Coast, traveling into Latin and South America, speak, learning to speak Spanish, more like Spanglish for me, and enjoying it and having the time of my life. And then I hurt my back. And I couldn't continue with the management training program that I was in. So I elected to go to law school. Did fairly well in law school, got out of law school, went to work for a large firm, worked at that firm for several years, and then went to work in private equity and have been an entrepreneur ever since. Awesome. And that was about 1984, 1985. The last paycheck I had was 37 years ago. <laughs> that's, that's great. What, uh, you know, what, what prompted you to leave big law and, and go into the, the private equity space? Oh, I got an offer from a guy who I was representing. And we got to be very close as friends. And he looked over one day and said, you know, you're really wasting your talents just practicing law. You're creative. You have all these ideas that go way beyond the bounds of law. You've got your CPA certificate. You've got your, you, you have a degree in statistics. Why are you there? You, you're capable of so much more. And so he enticed me to come and be his partner. Uh, we were in business for about six, six months before that firm totally collapsed. <laughs> But it was a good entree into the private equity field, having had a loser the first one out of the gate. <laughs> so what did you do after that? Went and found some more things to invest in and some additional companies to get involved in. And then, you know, the company that went bankrupt, we took it from a, from a mainframe uh, a mainframe foundation into a diffuse PC foundation. And then we upgraded the software and you know we packaged it up and sold it in a different uh, different level to a different group of people so it wasn't like we failed even though we we failed so you failed reconstituted 
reinstituted and that we took that and we took it to the next level. So it was a failure and then it wasn't a failure. Makes sense. Take us from there. How did you get from there to, to your current business? And then tell us a little bit about your current business. Oh, yeah, I got involved with partners. I enjoy working with people. And I think it's really necessary to understand who you are, what you're capable of doing, and most importantly, what you're not capable of doing. And like Mark Twain said, you know, it's not what you don't know that'll hurt you. It's what you do know that just ain't so. And at the end of the day, if you don't have good, diverse people with you in partnership with you to keep you straight and for you to keep them straight, I think that you really run at a disability as an entrepreneur at that point. So I became involved with different sets of partners over a long period of time. I took about four years off in the middle of all that. I did not do very well as a retiree. I just, you know, the first year fishing, that's great. Second year fishing is okay. Third year, it's like, oh God, I got to go fishing. So you, you kind of get to the point where you realize if you're not intellectually challenged with the people around you and the things that you're doing, you're wasting your time. So in 2002, I began investigating this business that we're in now. And I thought, you know, you could commoditize this business, but the software had not caught up with it. The connectivity, the telephony, the internet, and these things had not caught up with it. So I kept it in the back of my mind as being something to be very interesting. And by 2015, my son was looking for something to do, and he was uh, very adept at this type of business. I enticed him into coming to Wyoming in 2017. I think it was late 2017, 2018, we got this business off the ground. And we thought, you know, if we ever got to like 10,000 clients, that would be great. It'll be a good secondary source of income. It was later in my career. I didn't need that much money at that point. We do, we, we do like 40,000 a year now. So we thought if we ever had 10,000, it'd be great. We're doing 40,000 a year now. And we've expanded the scope of what we're doing. And you're, you're well aware as an attorney, commoditized aspect of the legal business is something that law firms have used to buoy up other sides of their practice that we have undercut to a very great degree. And my view is on uh, most of what we do on the commoditized side is better than what most law firms provide. And then on the customized side, we have experts in these fields that can give you a level of expertise on the customization of the documents that's hard to find, hard for most people to find. Yeah. So maybe tell us a little bit more uh, for our listeners that don't know about that business. What, what exactly did you do? What, what is that business? Yeah, essentially, what we do is we organize corporations, limited liability companies, some partnerships, and we structure business organizations so that they flow through and provide the best benefit for the clients. We focus a great deal on asset protection. We focus on the tax aspects of it. And we most importantly focus on anonymity. And, the, you know, you're not anonymous to the federal government. Uh, you disclose yourself to the federal government, the ultimate beneficial owner or UBO, the know your client rule at the bank. It's not as if you're trying to sneak by anybody. But for the average person on the street, why are you disclosing who you are and what you own? It's really none of their business. I think that's the private side of business that we're entitled to keep. So in a nutshell, that's what we do. And we re represent a lot of clients throughout the world these days who have come into various states to form LLCs. We also do a lot of trust business, asset protection trusts. My feeling is that Wyoming is one of the premier jurisdictions for asset protection on the trust side and the LLC side right now. And they have worked hard, the Wyoming State Political Action Committee, which is largely formed by banks and attorneys and accountants have worked very hard to make Wyoming, in the words of The Economist magazine, the new offshore onshore trust jurisdiction. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's where I do all my LLCs in Wyoming. You know, they always talk about Wyoming, Nevada, Delaware. Those are kind of the ones. But Wyoming, you know, to me stands out. It's a little bit cheaper. Um, still has the same laws, um, uh, the same good laws that kind of protect you and anonymity and targeting order protection and things like that. So um, certainly on board there with you. Um, I, I love that you saw the writing on the wall when you, when you started this business. You were like, okay, I can see where there are certain things that we can you know, automatically do them, commoditize them. Um, and we're going to get in front of it and start this business. That, that was the entrepreneurial mind uh, kind of turning in your head. I, I love that you, you, you thought of that and kind of took that. And now it's, it's, it's a thriving business. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you've seen the evolution of law. And I think that if you don't apply tech to the practice of law, that you're really doing a disservice for your clients. Most people starting a business, an entrepreneur, do not know a good attorney to go out and form an LLC and provide them with the tax advice. So you're able to get a hold of us online, speak with an attorney for 30 minutes, resolve most of your questions. You can go through our website, read page, thousands of pages of information on LLCs and trusts and corporations, the things that you need to do, the way in which to structure them. We try to draw diagrams so that people can understand it just a wealth of information that's available for free. And then if you have questions, give us a call. We'll, we'll sit there for a half an hour. We don't have to talk about the weather, your kids, we get right into what it is that you need. We're not your friends, we're your attorney. And as a result, for a half an hour payment, wh where can you get that? You don't have to put a suit and a tie and drive downtown to an office. You call us up, you get the information you need and you go on with it. Yeah. So I think in that, in that context, I, we provide a superlative service. Yeah. Yeah. Let's dive into asset protection a little bit. A lot of people have questions about that, especially when they're first getting started um, investing in real estate, whether that's, you know, a, a single family house or an Airbnb or up to, you know, commercial syndication, whether you're on the passive or the active side, you know, when is it the right time to form that LLC? I mean, should you do it right out of the gate? Should you wait till you have a certain amount of equity built up um, in, in a property or when, when should you start that? When, when do you need to protect yourself? Well, my advice is up front. Why not form the LLC first, fund it, buy the property, then you don't have the Fraudulent Transfer Avoidable Preferences Act issues that come into play. If you buy a property in your own name, transfer it into an LLC, you've got a two to four year statute of limitations where they can set that LLC aside. If you buy it to begin with in the LLC and provide a personal guarantee, you're, ob you're obligated on the guarantee to the bank, but you're not obligated to the public in general. So my advice is you know, do the planning up front institute the entities up front, make the acquisitions with the entity, put together a real estate holding company, have your management service organization off to the side if you want to become actively involved in it and do it right from the beginning. It doesn't cost that much more. And at the end of the day, it works better. And you have that, that uh, you know, uh, comfort of mind at the end of the day as well. Yeah. Do you have any rules of thumb about, uh, you know, putting a property, a different property in a different LLC, um, each one individually, setting up different silos, or should you hit a certain amount of equity for each one? Or do you have any rules of thumb for that? Uh, you know, I had one gentleman that came in, he had 35 properties in the same LLC. And, uh, <laughs> and he had leveraged himself to the hilt. So when he got hit with COVID, he ended up losing most of them because he had the issues with the collections, et cetera, et cetera. Had he separated those out into silos and to differ differentiated them a bit, he probably could have saved about a third to 40%, maybe 50% of them by picking which ones were the best, to, best ones to fund and which ones he just had to let go, but instead he lost them all. So, you know, that's an easy case. 
uh, it, it depends on the amount of equity you have in each property. And most people put 20 to 25% down would be particularly on the commercial property end of it. If you do that, then you've got a significant amount of equity in each one of those properties. Why would you put one property at risk against another property when you don't need to? So my advice is, it depends on the size of the entity and the amount of money you put into it, but generally each, each uh, real estate project should go into a separate entity. Now there's something called a series LLC in Wyoming. The difficulty with that is that it should work perfectly for real estate, but we have not defined that statute yet. And most importantly, banks, the IRS and whatnot, haven't figured out how to tax them, how to fund them, or how to provide for the liability within them. So a series LLC would be perfect, except that it's not on a practical end. So you usually do a real estate holding company. And then underneath that, you probably have individual LLC investments in each property. But if let's say you had investments in Oklahoma, you'd probably put a holding company for those investments, side of those away from the real estate properties that you might have in California or Texas. So state by state, you put them into different silos. So that if you end up with issues within one silo, it doesn't bring them all down. Sure. Do you recommend starting a Wyoming LLC to own that property in Oklahoma or, and then have it register as a foreign entity in Oklahoma? Or would you just say, why don't you just own the LLC in Oklahoma? You know, that's a mixed bag. Uh, you know, my view is that if you use a Wyoming LLC to buy a property in Oklahoma and issues arise and you get sued in Oklahoma as a, a foreign registered LLC, that court's probably going to apply Oklahoma LLC law to that entity. But then again, they might not. But then you've got the double double fee of a an Oklahoma filing as a foreign registration and then also the Wyoming filing. So I, I have a tendency to recommend get an Oklahoma LLC put the appropriate structure in place and make sure that you transfer the excess funds over your working capital reserves up to the Wyoming entity and get them out of the status they accrue. Sure. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, mm -hmm. How about any additional complications for, because a lot of our listeners are actually in California, including myself. Tell us, uh, I don't know, just dive into that a little bit as far as, <clears throat> you know, everybody's trying to avoid that $800 franchise fee in California. Uh, they're only trying to pay that once. And then you got all these Wyoming LLCs that own all these different properties in different states. How do you kind of structure that the right way um, to reduce the amount of fees that you have to pay in California? Well, that's tough, isn't it? Because yeah, California is very aggressive on that franchise fee. My general view is with respect to that $800, just pay it and be done with it. Because at the end of the day, if you get caught trying to be clever, with that, with your franchise organization, you're going to lose a lot more than you've ever gained. Yeah. So I, I, I'm not going to game that system at the end of the day, form a California entity or register a Wyoming entity to own it, call it from there. But would you cycle all those up through one entity rather than registering each one of your LLCs that owns a property in California? Well, yeah, you know what you can do? You can use nominee services as well. So what you might do is that you might have different LLCs that own each one of those properties and you have a nominee that's acting on behalf of them and that one nominee pays the one $800 fee. Exactly. And see if you can't get that through. And, you know, that's clever. It may work, but if it doesn't, you know, you're going to have penalties with it. Right, right. Because it's obvious what you're doing, but, you know, <laughs> give it a shot. Yeah, everybody tries to get around that California law, but it's pretty black and white when you read it that you, you've got to pay that $800. You're supposed to pay that $800 fee for pretty much any kind of activity that you do in California. If, if you live yeah. in California, 
and you do anything, if you breathe the wrong way, <laughs> you should be paying that $800 fee. And with the regulatory agencies there, they start breaking your, your fingers at the first knuckle. So you've got 15 on each hand before you say uncle and pay the $800 fee. And they have the patience to take you knuckle by knuckle by knuckle. So, uh, you know, there are, there are better ways in which to make money than trying to save that $800 fee is my, is my thought. Yeah. And a lot of people are just moving out of California. <laughs> yeah. But you know, the problem is you can make a lot of money on real estate in California that you can't make in other states. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the weather's pretty nice down here in SoCal too. <laughs> it is, you know, so you pay a price for that, but you, you know, you could move to Wyoming and buy real estate here and it would take you a millennium to make what you make one year in California. Yeah. So, you know, the, the old adage in Wyoming is if you want to make $10 million in the real estate market in Wyoming, start with 50. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you may well lose 40. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, let's dive into a few, you know, what are some of the common mistakes you see with asset protection with, with let's say, you know, real estate investors are getting started. Um, what, what are some of the common mistakes that you see? You're right. Good from the beginning. It's a lack of planning. You know, if you're going to get actively involved in the real estate market and start buying a number of properties, then what you should do is you put each one of those properties into a separate LLC and have them owned by a holding company. And then off to the side, if you're going to start managing your own properties, put them into a management service organization. And you recall the condominiums that collapsed in Florida? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, what you found is that the land was owned by one entity, the building was owned by another entity, and then the mortgages were held by a third. So at the end of the day, who's responsible for what? So if you have a management service organization that owns the building and rents the building, but the land's owned by someone else and the building collapses, well, you got a problem, you can go after the MSO, but the MSO never seems to have enough money because they're a flow-through entity. They have just enough to get by day to day to day. And then you've got the land with another entity that has no liability for the collapse of the structure. So if you enter into that kind of planning up, up front, you get rid of the catastrophic risk. Because what you're worried is a catastrophic risk and a real estate holding company, the umbrella policy that you've got will satisfy most uh, risk that you possibly have. But if there is a catastrophic risk, then at some point in time, they'll try to break through those LLCs. You may want to have an asset protection trust at the top. Plus, if you start doing business in uh, some states beyond the real estate markets, you don't want those individual liabilities from those businesses washing into those real estate entities. So it's really good to keep them separate and apart from one another. And I think it's really good to have a management service organization in there and sometimes to bifurcate the land from the structure from the operation. So if you do that, you're going to find that once you get to about that $10 million mark, that is definitely what you should be doing level that level of complexity. Because the more moving parts you have, the more likely it is at some point in time, you will have a catastrophic loss. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the more that you can, you know, put a, a different different risk into different silos, let's say the property management, let's say employees, if you have a lot of employees, something like that, um, you know, the land, the building, the more that you can separate things, the more that you're reducing your risk overall. Yeah, and think about the employment obligations you have, particularly in a state like California, would you not want those to reside in a separate entity that if you have a big risk within, it blows up that entity, but it doesn't blow up the assets that support the entity. Exactly. And that to me is a real risk that you run into with employees. Not that, you know, like we have a lot of employees and we very much like working with them, but I don't want to put them in a position where they've gone bankrupt. 
Yeah, exactly. And like you said, especially in a, in a state like California or other ones where, um, you know, it's not as business friendly. So, you know, the courts tend to side on the employee side, the tenant side, um, rather than the landlord and the business owner side. So the more that you can separate those risks, the better. Exactly right. You know, this, this old adage that it'll work itself out on appeal. Yeah. After seven years of, of appellate struggles and you end up, you end up settling it, you know, you're not going to feel as though that was maybe the best course in which to proceed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had mentioned this before we got started, but I really want to jump into it. It's a little bit different um, because a lot of the folks out there are passive investors in real estate syndications, or perhaps uh, they're looking to get started. Um, and one of the big things that one of the big advantages to passive investing is the limited liability, right? You're coming in as a passive investor. You're not exposing yourself to, to liability. If somebody slips and falls or something like that on the property, you're not exposed. Um, but there are some risks involved. Um, would you suggest that a passive investor form an entity like an LLC in Wyoming to invest passively into this syndication, or they should just go in as an individual? Well, what does it cost to put that entity in place? You know, you, you form the entity for 300 bucks, including the EIN. It's a pass through onto your 1040. So there's no additional accounting costs that come out of it. And yet you've got that buffer from liability of anything that might occur. So for the price of lunch, you know, one lunch, you've got a, a year's worth of coverage. So how can you not put those into that uh, one entity? Right. And, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yep. Yeah. Go ahead, sir. Oh, I was just going to say, I don't know what kind of lunch you're eating, but three. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm thinking California terms. Oh, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> Lunch with you and your friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. With, with respect to the passive syndications, that's the, the one example I, I can think of is it's more of, it can protect you from yourself. You can protect your investment from yourself as an individual. If you do something, um, you know, you get in a car accident, it's your fault. You get sued as an individual, depending on what state you're in, depending on what kind of, how you set it up you may be able to protect that investment from yourself and something you did as an individual. Exactly right. When you get into more sophisticated asset protection planning, you're, you're not worried so much about the inside going out as you are the outside coming in. So you used as an example, somebody who gotten into a car wreck. And there was a, a great case where an individual had, uh, anyway, he did not have insurance on his car. So they ended up coming in and getting into the corporation, liquidating the corporation to satisfy his individual debt, which is why he set that corporation up. In Wyoming, the only level of recovery that you have is charging order protection. So what ends up happening is that you can get a charging order against that individual's membership interest, but you cannot operate to take that membership interest to force your way into that LLC, which is a significant benefit to the LLC over a corporation. So in Wyoming with the LLC, Wyoming invented the LLC. So in Wyoming with the LLC, with the operating agreement, the charging order protection, why would you not put that in place to keep it away from you? Yeah. Uh, could you jump into that a little bit more about the charging order protection? A lot of people don't even know what that is. Right. Let's say that you had a judgment against you of some sort and the uh, attorney for the judgment creditor comes after you and says, look, I need you to disclose each and every interest you have in whatever best business entity you have. If you give him your stock, then that individual can foreclose against that stock, take the stock, point themselves to be an officer and director of the company, liquidate the company, and then take the money to satisfy the debt. With an LLC, they can get an execution against your membership interest, but they can't take the membership interest and sell it. 
because you've got proscriptions against that within the operating agreement. So all they can do is say, look, in the event that that LLC ever sends money to you, have the LLC send the money to us. So rather than making a direct distribution to your membership interest holder, you make indirect distributions over a period of time. That doesn't violate the charging order protection. In addition, you've got a disproportionate distribution mechanism in place. So what you might do is let's say you had four partners in an LLC and you're all equal partners and one ends up with a charging order against the quarter percent interest. Well, you would distribute cash to three of them, but you withhold the cash to the other one and make a distribution of phantom income to them so that they have tax on the phantom income. So at that point in time, you've not only got an income tax that has to be paid, you don't have the cash from the entity to pay the income tax. So the phantom income can be something that you use to squeeze that creditor into a settlement. That, my friends, is why you need an asset protection attorney on your, on your team. <laughs> right there. <laughs> Yeah, people say, you know, attorneys say that'll never work. Well, you know, why not give it a try? You're already at no. So you do it. And then you end up in litigation over that. In the meantime, the judgment creditor who's got a judgment that they can't get satisfied now has a tax obligation. Now you're at the table talking. <clears throat> right. And if you add on the anonymity uh, on top of that, um, it might prevent you from even getting sued in the first place. Um, that That's a big thing too, right? Yes, absolutely. And for instance, like these asset protection trusts, if you put a discretionary distribution standard in place on distributions, you don't have a property interest. So if you have somebody that you owe money to and they say, hey, what interest do you have in a trust? And you say, well, I've got this interest in this self-created asset protection trust. They said, great, we're going to attach it. <clears throat> Wyoming law won't let you attach it because it's not a property interest. You're not going to get any distribution unless and until some trustee says you're going to get a distribution. And even then you can make indirect distributions. So there's not anything that, an, that, that a judgment creditor could get a hold of. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> now, let's say we've, we've done everything we're supposed to do. You know, we, we set up the asset protection structure the way that we're supposed to. Um, you know, we, we got ahead of it before we even purchased the property or made investments or started a business or what have you. What are some of the pitfalls you've seen people where they've blown their protection? What, what have they done wrong? Oh, they start treating the asset, the asset protection trust of the LLC like it's just their pocketbook. So the next thing you know, they've got their mistresses taking money out directly from it, or they're covering their personal credit card debt, or they're running their kids tuition from it. Just all kinds of crazy things that go on. And and you just say, look, if you're, if you're running it as a legitimate business, make a distribution to you and pay your personal expenses out of the distribution. Don't try to hide the expenses within the LLC. Because if you do, the IRS is going to set it aside anyway, if you get caught with that. And, you know, in any event, you're not going to have the asset protection that comes from it. So they just start treating it like it's their own pocketbook. Gotcha. Yeah. And you, you just got to take the distributions the right way. Right. I mean, of course, you're, you're going to need to, well, you're probably going to need to take some sort of a distribution or income from your business if that's your lifeblood and you just have to do it the right way. Um, there's just certain steps you have to do to do it. Take the distribution, pay the tax. You know, thank God that you live in the United States and you made the money in the first place. You could be in Syria. It could be a lot worse. You know, pay the tax and get on with it. You know, and I tell people that have a large tax obligation is that don't wait till the end of the year, pay it now, get it out of the way. That way you don't think about it anymore. You just get on with your life. Go make some more money. Yeah. <laughs> Focus on what you're good at. Make some more money. I love it. Yeah. Don't worry about the taxes. That stuff will sort itself out at the end of the day. There's nothing you can do about it anyway. 
I don't have a direct line to any to my congressman. Yeah. <laughs> Um, one other thing we haven't touched on too much, you know, outside of that asset protection, where does the state planning really layer onto all of this? Just generally, um, we haven't talked about that a lot on this show, but just generally, where, where does that come into play? Where do we, where do we incorporate that into our asset protection structure? Well, the asset protection trust provides the estate planning that comes with it. It provides for the implementation of third-party trusts so that you can protect your kids from the three things they need to be protected against. First of all, the trust pays the taxes. It keeps it out of their marital estate. It keeps it out of their creditor's estate. So it provides a level of protection to them. And then it also funds those trusts from subtrusts, from a top trust, so it avoids hassles. You know, because if you have four kids in a family, you can guarantee there's at least two that don't get along somewhere, somehow. And if you get into these life fights that go on, it'll bankrupt that company over a long period of time. Not so much from the level of money that comes out, but just the fact that it be, becomes incapable of operating within those systems over a period of time. So you can establish something that puts some kids on the outside, some kids on the inside, or puts them all on the outside and puts a professional man manager in the middle, particularly with small businesses. You're going to have, if you've got four kids and you've got a small business and you have one child that's running that business very well, you'd want that individual to have pretty much plenary authority over what they're doing subject to some review from an outside, outside, say, accountant or an attorney. But if you don't provide that level of planning in there, I've seen so many family businesses go under after two or three generations just because they haven't put the level of friction out of the way for people. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think the asset protection plan, the, the, the foundation of your business and the structuring of your holding companies, um, you know, minimizing your estate taxes. At the end of the day, we have an incredibly high deduction right now on estate taxes. And given the level of uh, deficits that we're running at, you know, estate taxes have gone in and out how many times? Eight times in the last 110 years. If you think that we're going to keep up at this level, I don't think most professionals would agree with you. So you put estate planning in place, you put generation skipping in place, you put all the asset protection in place, you put the anonymity in place. And then your family's got a chance of, um, you know, doing something over the next generation. They got a stake for what goes on in the next generation. If you don't do that, I think you are wasting the, the time and effort and to a very great extent that you've expended during this lifetime for the benefit of your family and the next. Right. Yeah. It's all about planning and implementation and, and just trying to protect what, what you've earned and what you're, you know, working for each and every day. Yeah. Yeah. That's it in a nutshell right there. And, you know, you practice law. Where could you go wrong when you end up in litigation? Everyone loses. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, Mark, before we jump into the Freedom Four, you have one last gold nugget for our listeners. Yeah, you know, I, I would say put your estate plan in place up front, put your business structure in place up front, pay the taxes as they come due, and go enjoy your life. Quit worrying about so much stuff. You know, it's a great country. We've got a great economy going on. Just uh, do the best you can to get on with it. Spend some time with your family. Yeah. Don't lose sleep over it. Just figure out, get it done. Hire somebody that knows what they're doing to take care of it for you so that you, you're not uh, waking up at two in the morning and like, hmm, I wonder if I did that right. Should I do this? Am I going to get sued? You know, you've got to, you've got to pass that off to, to someone else. I had, uh, when I first started out as an entrepreneur, I got some good advice from a friend of mine who since passed away. And he said, Go out and find a good attorney. When they send you the bill, pay it right away and never question it. He said, because fast pay makes fast friends. And as soon as I went out, got a good attorney, 
and began taking their advice without equivocating with them all the time, I did a lot better and I slept a lot better too. Yeah. Yep. Good advice. All right. Let's jump into the Freedom Four. It's time for the Freedom Four. What's the best thing you do to keep your mind and body healthy? Oh, you know, I read a great article here. Um, I practice a little bit of Buddhist meditation and things like that. Breathing, you know, sit down as an exercise and do five deep breaths and five exhales in a minute and see if that doesn't lower your blood pressure and allow you to sleep a little better and then allows you to go, okay, what's really important in the next day? What do I need to do? Do what you need to do and let the, you know, it, it, try, try not to make everything an emergency and everything has to be done right away today. So it reduces the stress on you. Love that. Love that. With all your success, what is one limiting belief that you've crushed along the way and how did you get past it? What, what was what? I didn't hear the question. One limiting belief that you had um, that you've crushed along the way. How did yeah, you, you have. People will always tell you that whatever you're doing, somebody else could do better or it's not going to work. And in this specific business that we have here right now, I was advised by a venture capitalist and an attorney that there was no way that we could make this thing function and that it would eventually, uh, it would eventually bankrupt itself and not be successful. And we're into our fifth year of operations. Every year we equal the revenues from the previous, all the previous years. And we've already, we've already beat that for this year. So I look at that and I say, okay, don't doubt yourself. Listen to the voice, get great help from the people who truly trust and ignore the rest of it. Awesome, man. What's one actionable step our listeners can do right now to start creating more freedom? I think that if you put a plan in place that systematizes what you're doing on your business side, it takes most of the decision-making out of the process. What are you willing to put in? What are you willing to lose? Stay by those rules, get good people in place and let them do their job. Perfect. Last but not least, how has passive income made your life better? It's mailbox money. You don't have to think about it. You walk out, you pull the mailbox out of deposits in the bank. It's easy. And yeah, it, it helps you to provide not only just for your family, but for the charities that you're interested in. It allows you, I think, to function as a human being. And you don't have to worry about somebody else doing all the work. That's what they're doing. So my advice on passive investors is pick a really good company with great management, with high integrity. If you've got that, you might not make as much as somebody that's a little bit, you know, closer skating to the edge. You'll sleep better. <laughs> yeah, passive income can let you go on a hundred day cruise and <laughs> and get interviewed on podcasts from France. <laughs> yeah, <there you> <laughs> For sure. Mark, this has been awesome, man. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Uh, just go to our website, Wyoming LLC Attorney, our Cloud Peak Law. What was it? Yeah. My son's sitting here. He's prompting me as to what the websites are. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what you do. You have your son come in and run the business for you. Take care of all these things. There you go. There you go. There's your, there's your estate planning right there. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> I don't have to worry about coming into my, someone coming into my business and figuring it out. I got him right here. <laughs> yep. There we go. All right, Mark. It's been awesome, man. Appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you, Seth. Appreciate right. the opportunity to sit here and speak to your people. It's good. All right, brother. Talk soon. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Pierce joining us live from France. 
Mark is a true expert in asset protection, and I've actually used his online services myself for forming LLCs in Wyoming. I didn't even realize that until uh, he was on the show, and I'm like, man, he's, his name actually sounds familiar. Cloud Peak Law sounds familiar. And I went back and looked, and I have a couple of uh, Wyoming LLCs that I have incorporated through his website. So be sure to check him out with any questions you might have about anything we discussed on the show today. Major key. CYA. We hear it all the time. We tell our clients that, but upfront CYA, make the investment. And to be honest with you, it's really not that much. It costs maybe a hundred, a couple hundred dollars to organize an LLC in Wyoming to at least get that minimal level of protection um, moving forward with your investments or your business or whatever it might be. You'll sleep better at night knowing that you're protected. And that in itself is, is worth a, a few hundred bucks. All right. If you're ready for a change and ready to take action, partner with us on our next passive real estate deal. Go to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com and join our Esquire Passive Investor Club. All right, kids. Enjoy the journey. Thank you for listening to the Passive Income Attorney Podcast with Seth Bradley. Do you want more ideas on how to generate multiple streams of passive income? Then jump over to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com for show notes and resources. Then apply for the private Facebook community by searching for the Passive Income Attorney on Facebook. And we'll see you on the next episode.